Good evening to you. Numbers chapter uh, 8 this evening. Sunday nights we make our way through the Bible from, um, that would be Genesis to Revelation, wouldn't it? We find ourselves in the book of Numbers, chapter 8. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. So he's talking uh, about the menorah, the golden lampstand that was one of the furnishings inside of the uh, holy place of the tabernacle with the altar of incense and also uh, the altar of showbread. And so he's giving him further instruction related to this, telling him to arrange the lamps. The seven lamps shall give light. This is what's very important to the Lord. In this, give light in front of the lampstand. He wants the light in that room to be directed in a particular de- uh, uh, direction. And Aaron did so. He arranged the lamps to face toward the front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, this workmanship of the lampstand was uh, of hammered gold. That's what the lampstand was uh, made of from its shaft to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. And so speaking of the menorah on the table behind me, we have an open Bible. And uh, usually it is opened up. Uh, to Isaiah chapter 53, wonderful chapter that speaks of our Jesus in, in the law and the prophets, specifically the prophets, and also a menorah, kind of a replica uh, of that ancient lampstand, the one that was in the tabernacle and later in the, in the temple itself, much, much larger. And sometimes people wonder, why in the world do we have a menorah in a Christian church? Um, because it's also a New Testament uh, image. You remember Jesus in the book of Revelation when he wrote to those seven churches, he moved among the seven lampstands and uh, speaking of the seven churches. And so the imagery is there. The lampstand speaks of his presence. We also uh, took a look at this lampstand, what it represents, its construction, all of that when we were in Exodus chapter 25. But before... They move into the land. Uh, The Lord's just going to kind of take care of some details here. And one of the details he wants to take care of is how Aaron handles this lampstand. And uh, in that uh, uh, holy place, which wasn't the holy of holies, because only the Ark of the Covenant was in that, but it was in the room next to that, the only light that was provided for that room was the golden lampstand. There was no natural light in that room. It all came uh, from the lampstand. And the lampstand was to be kept burning uh, 24 hours a day. That was the uh, responsibility of the priests in doing that. And it's a picture of Jesus uh, as he declared concerning himself, I am the light of the world. And of course the lamps, the, the uh, flame that burnt in the lampstand, they didn't have candles if you have an old King James, sometimes it talks about candlesticks and these things. It, it wasn't. It was a, a cup where oil would be put inside with a wick. And what fueled uh, the, the flame was oil. So a picture of being the light of the world fueled by the person of the Holy Spirit. And of course that was Jesus' life. began his public ministry uh, with his, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Um, after he was water baptized by John the baptizer. And, but it's also this lampstand is a picture of us. Jesus declared that we are the light of the world. Now you and I, we know, we know we're nothing and we're nobodies. Okay, very good. Uh, I didn't know how offensive that would be to some of you. Um, some of you are, might still be learning that you're a nothing and a nobody. But it's only as you decrease that the Lord will increase. And so um, one day you won't be offended by it. You'll, you'll glory in it. But we, we know we're, no, you know, it's like the light of the world. Come on. And, but that's how God sees us. 
And when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives as we become Christians and then the fruit of the Spirit is flowing out of our lives and just the evidence of a relationship with Him, He makes us into a completely different kind of person than the world produces and the difference is dramatic. Even if we think, oh boy, I've got so much further to go and all of these, we can be so aware of our you know, inadequacy. But the fact of the matter is when a person's born again, starts walking with the Lord, different kind of life. And that light and that life and that light is as impossible to ignore as, as a lamp that's shining in a dark place. And so we're the light of the world. Jesus said that. And then he said, uh, you know, when people, when men see our good works, which is a part of that light also, they'll glorify our Father who is in heaven. Now, what's important to God here, I, and he's, he's so into detail. I just like it about him. And uh, so he, but he says, now, when you put the oil in the lamp and you set the lampstand in there, I want you to make sure that you put the individual globes that go into each of the, each of the uh, stands to, to thrust light out into the center of the room. In other words, he wants there to be the light from the lampstand, but he wants it to be handled in a way that he gets the maximum out of that, that, uh, that lampstand. Now, he speaks of the, the lampstand in verse 4 as, as workmanship. Now, this workmanship of the lampstand, it was called workmanship because it was made by man. God gave instructions for how it was to be made. It was made by man. It was made of gold. Beautiful workmanship. Now, the Bible speaks of you and I in the New Testament as God's workmanship. And in the book of... Uh, of Ephesians it speaks of the fact that for by grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourself it's a gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast as we saw this morning and then he goes on and talks about what happens to our lives after we become uh, Christians for now we are his workmanship we're in his hands he's going to make us into something different for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and that word uh, we are his workmanship there in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 it's the uh, Greek word poema we get our English word poem from it the Bible says that when we come to know the Lord he begins to work in our lives and we ma- he makes us into his work of art and each one of us is different poems are different aren't they I, I, I tried to write poems in school it was mandatory and uh, during certain classes and I discovered pretty quickly I didn't have much of a knack for that and, and I've tried to read poetry, and some poetry I can read, and then some of it's a little bit beyond me. Uh, but I don't fault the poetry, obviously. But one of the, I, I do appreciate poetry enough to know that poems are different. And the Lord speaks of you and I as His poem. The poem that God writes to the world through your life is there's a sense in which all of, our, all of them are the same in our lives, but there's a sense in which each one of us communicates a little something different uh, to the world from God. So we're His workmanship. We are a work of art that He is creating, and, uh, and that is a beautiful thing. We're like the lampstand in that way. But it's not just enough to be His workmanship. There also has to be the proper placement of of the lamp in order to get kind of the maximum use of, of the lampstand. And so the Lord has to take our lives and, and put us in places in life where that light is going to shine the brightest for Him. Now where does a light shine the brightest? <laughs> in the darkest places, doesn't it? Say, why do I have this job? Why do I work here? Why am I in this neighborhood? Why am I in this apartment complex? Why, why do I have this family and I'm the only one that's saved, you know? And uh, all these, you know, why? And we think it's so dark and, and he's going to use his lamps like us. He's going to put us in dark places in order that our light's going to shine most effectively for him. So don't get all you know, concerned about that and everything's fine. He looks and says, all right, I've built and done something beautiful in this person's life and now I'm going to put it someplace where I can really 
be seen in their life, receive glory through their life, and sometimes will plunk us in some pretty dark places for that, that to happen. So he says he wants to maximize the light coming out of that lampstand. Then he moves on in verse 5, and he starts to talk about the consecration of the Levites. We've been talking about the Levites. The Levites were this labor force that God was separating the tribe of Levi out from the other 12 tribes to supply kind of a labor force or a deacon force for the priests to help them do the physical uh, tasks related to worship of the tabernacle later also at the temple. It's very, very physical, demanding work, and they needed physical help, and so the Levites were given to them for that. But now the tabernacle is built, the furnishings are built, they're getting ready to go to the promised land, everything's in place. So again, God's taking care of some details. Now he wants to publicly dedicate these Levites uh, to the uh, priests, the descendants of Aaron now, for them to use uh, uh, henceforth for, for the work of the Lord. And take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. So God is going to put them through kind of a process that, that pro provides them with a ceremonial cleansing. In other words, everything that happens here that God orders to be done, it's symbolic of a, of a spiritual thing uh, related to their lives. He, he talks about the ceremony itself beginning in verse 7 and said, Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them or give them uh, give uh, that sense to, before the children of Israel and to them that they are, uh, they are clean now to serve me. Sprinkle water of purification upon them and uh, so they would take the water uh, we know uh, elsewhere that there would be the mixing of the uh, ashes of the red heifer as a part of all of that and so they would uh, rinse them their bodies they, uh, obviously they would be clothed in some kind of a, a modest way but they would be sprinkled with a, the water of purification on them and it would represent before the Levites and also before the whole nation that holiness is required of someone who does the work of the Lord even if they're doing uh, just so-called the physical work that the Levites were doing. It's very easy to think, well, you know, the priests and the sons of Aaron, they got to be holy, but, you know, I'm just hauling boards around for the Lord. Uh, I'm just taking down this tabernacle and putting it back up. But any service that's done to the Lord, however small or great, in the raising of our children or in prayer or whatever it might be, the things that are going on in our life that God has called you to do, um, he, the joy, he receives the joy out of it when it's done by a holy vessel. So they were to sprinkle water of purification on them and then let them shave all of their body. So perhaps in this... There is the recognition uh, with the uh, Nazarite, the shaving of his hair. It represent, represented a extra kind of consecration to God. So perhaps this represented that too, that they were giving their lives in a special consecration uh, to the Lord. And let them wash their clothes, again speaking of purity, not only inwardly but outwardly, and uh, so make themselves clean. And then they shall take a young bull with its grain offering of fine flour, mixed with oil and you shall take another bull as a sin offering so there were sacrifices involved in this ceremony the first young bull was a, a, a burnt offering it spoke of the fact that they were dedicating their lives wholly uh, to the Lord consecrating their lives and then you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of meeting bring them to the tent and you shall gather together the whole congregation of the children of Israel so this is a public ceremony that's occurring right near the entrance uh, of the tabernacle there in the wilderness. And so you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Now, probably not all three million of them, probably one representative of each of the other eleven tribes came, representing the tribe and laying hands then uh, on, this, uh, on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. Now it's really very beautiful what's happening here because it could have just, God could have just said, all right, give me the Levites, you guys go on about your business and all. But he involves the entire nation coming forward, either themselves or by way of rep, uh, representatives. They lay their hands on the Levites. And what they're communicating in that, they're saying in essence to the Lord, Lord, we would love to do what they're doing. 
Uh, we aren't looking for them to take this position of service to you and thinking, oh good, we get out of hauling those boards around and taking care of these physical things. Lord, when you see them doing the work that they're going to do for you, we want you to know that we would love to be in their shoes. That what they're doing, it represents our heart toward you too. So they were identifying with them. Their heart is very, very beautiful in, in all of this. And then the Levites um, shall, uh, verse 12, shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls, and you shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And so here was a, a burnt offering being made, again, representing their consecration to the Lord. The burnt offering was consumed completely upon the altar by the fire, represented complete offering of, of their lives to the Lord, and then also a sin offering. It's very, very nice. Here is the public uh, confession and, and uh, kind of a uh, recognition by God, but also a confession by the Levites. Yes, God has separated us aside to do this work as the tribe of Levi, to serve him in this special way, but we're sinners just like everybody else. We're no better than anybody else, and it's all grace, it's all His calling, and we're no closer to God or further away from God than any of the other tribes. And, uh, and so there's that beautiful humility and recognition. No matter how God uses us in life or His calling that He has on our lives, He has a calling on all of our lives. We all get to do different things uh, for Him. But no one, no matter what their calling is or however you know, public it might be or famous they become in these things, they are just simply a sinner who is trying to be obedient to God's call upon their lives. We're all in the same boat. And so beautiful imagery, picture of humility and all, and uh, uniting of the tribes so the Levites wouldn't start getting little caps with Levites written on it and Levite tribe number one or something like that and uh, cause some kind of division. That isn't in the text, but that's why you have me as your pastor to bring these kind of dangers out to you. Verse 13, And you shall stand the Levites before Aaron and his sons and then offer them like a wave offering to the Lord. And you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. After that the Levites shall go into service uh, the tabernacle of meeting and so you shall cleanse them and offer them like a wave offering for they are wholly given to me from among the children of Israel I have taken them for myself instead of all who opened the womb the firstborn of the children of Israel for all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine both man and beast on the day that I struck all the firstborn of the, in the land of Egypt I sanctified them to myself I have taken the Levi instead of all of the firstborn of the children of Israel. So he repeats what we've seen before, and that is the Levites were given to God as a tribe to accomplish this as a replacement for the sparing of the firstborn of uh, all that were among the children of Israel. And there was a difference of about 300 and all of that, and we saw how God took care of the difference in terms of an offering, financial offering being made to the Lord. So he just acknowledges, um, I'm not taking from you uh, anything that isn't already uh, mine in terms of your lives. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary. So they were given as a, a couple of reasons for them being given uh, to the priests. Number one, in order to take care of a lot of the physical labor associated with serving the Lord, the moving of the tabernacle. They were a pilgrim moving people. But number two, also to provide kind of a buffer 
between the tabernacle and all of the rest of the children of Israel. So the tabernacle was set right in the middle of the camp of Israel, and then uh, three tribes placed on each of the four sides around that tabernacle in the shape uh, of a cross. But before, as you would have the tabernacle, before you would head out into the tribes, there would be a buffer of the Levites who would also be encamped all around the tabernacle to keep somebody from, you know, waking up and sleeping sleepwalking or uh, just deliberately doing something profane and walking out of the camp and walking into the tabernacle or something like that. So they were kind of a, had a, a guard duty uh, place that no one would inadvertently head into places they weren't supposed to that were only for the Levites or, or for the priests. And that'll uh, come into play in just a, a little bit as, as we get into the next chapter uh, or, or so. And so this was uh, part of uh, of their responsibilities. And thus Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites so the obedience according to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites so the children of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves and washed their clothes and Aaron presented them like a wave offering before the Lord and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them and after that, the Levites went to do their work in the tabernacle of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. And so, another little detail off of the checklist before they make, start to make their journey toward the promised land. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Thus, this is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at the age of 50 years, uh, they must cease performing this work, and they shall work no more. And so we saw again earlier in the book, the uh, kind of the beginning age and the retirement age of the Levites. And elsewhere we saw where at, uh, at 30 years old you began officially with, with the privilege of being able to do this physical work as a Levite. You worked for 20 years. At 50 years um, you would then retire and take on other responsibilities, which we'll take a look at in, in just a moment. And so in those days to be 50 was to be elderly. Uh, then 50 was the new uh, whatever, or the old, whatever it was. It's a little, it was, it was harder to be 50 then than it is today. And, and so this was, they would retire out at that point. Now, again, sometimes people look and say, well, he said 30 elsewhere, and then he says 25 here. And evidently, there was, again, as we'll see, there's so much we're going to see. But in just a verse or so, there was a period of training for the, uh, for the, the Levites. And apparently there was this period of a five-year training for them so that when they were 30 years old and it was time to enter into the service of a Levite, the transition would be very, very seamless. You'd have very quality people stepping in. Again, to be a Levite, it wasn't just physical labor. It wasn't just a strong back. It required a person to be very, very spiritually mature, it required them to have a tremendous sobriety about spiritual things and holy things. And so the Lord kind of looked at it and said, all right, at about 50, um, they, they, they can't handle the physical side of it anymore. But prior to 30, um, I, I, he's, he's thinking about 30 somewhere in there where they've kind of settled in life and they understand how serious all these things are and nobody will get giddy and do something silly around the tabernacle. So uh, th this was the, the age window and then they, they'd probably be trained for that five years. They must minister the, once they... They retire at 50, not going to work anymore, do the physical labor. They may minister with their brethren uh, in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to needs. So they didn't just go off the scene and, and put them in a home of some kind. Uh, they, they would continue to serve uh, there, but they just wouldn't do the physical labor. There is a place for getting out of the way for the next group to come in, but they, shall them, uh, they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. So the, at 50 years old, you kind of go into kind of a supervisory uh, position where you would mentor 
the new Levites. You would teach them how to do certain things. Um, you also could continue to do kind of that guard duty aspect around the tabernacle, making sure nobody inadvertently lost their way and were wandering, wandering toward the Holy of Holies or something like that and turn them away. Something a little less physically demanding. Uh, chapter 9. Now, the Lord spoke uh, to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of, of Egypt, saying, so here he is continuing to check off his checklist, these details that need to be taken care of before we head out, and now what he's going to speak to them about is to partake in the second Passover. Remember the first Passover that they had experienced with God was the Passover. It was um, when they were there in Egypt and God sent that tenth plague through Egypt, the killing of the firstborn. He instructed them by faith to apply the blood to the doorpost and the lentil of their house. And then when the avenging angel would see the blood, he would pass over that house. And uh, so it was a celebration of God's redemption, his protection, his redemption or his deliverance of them from Egypt because following that great, that great plague, then Egypt uh, or, or Pharaoh sent them out of, of Egypt. And so uh, this, all of this Passover, it's a picture of Jesus. You think about that is um, they would take that uh, hyssop bush uh, branch, put it into a bowl, as, as we're told, related to the Passover, put it in the bowl, and then they would put it on both sides of the door jams and then, and then up on the top. And then interestingly enough, they would put the hyssop back in the bowl and the bowl would stay down in the bottom full of blood. And so a picture of Christ. Picture, it's a picture of everywhere he bled in order for us to be saved. Not just a picture of the cross. So you've got the, the blood out of his hands, you've got the, the blood that is pouring from his head as a result of the beatings and the cross that's on, on the top of his head, and you've got the blood that is literally flowing down the outside of his body and dripping to the ground below. And so a picture of, of our Lord who's supplied us with the greater redemption, the greater deliverance, not out of Egypt, but out of the world and out of the kingdom of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of God. Anybody happy for Jesus tonight? So thankful for him. You know, it's, it's so great. The, the, the twofold thing for us as Christians, and all of us come to the Lord from a different kind of testimony and a different kind of way, and it's it's all great as long as we come uh, to know the Lord. But some of us, you know, we come to know the Lord and we are so thankful for the life that he has delivered us into. But we are so thankful for the life that he has delivered us out of. And so when we talk about the exodus, we talk about deliverance, we talk about redemption, we talk about rescuing us out of the world. Some of us, when we talk about that and think about that, wow. Our hearts just jump for joy uh, over it. And, and so this was what they were to do. Now, they've already experienced the, the first Passover in Egypt, but now, it's about 13 months later, he said the Passover is supposed to happen on certain days, certain months. They've hit that place. Now he wants them to partake of the second Passover, the first Passover outside of Egypt. It's very interesting because he takes the first Passover they partook of before they left Egypt to head out into the wilderness. Now they're going to partake in the second Passover again before the next journey in their history, and that is to leave Sinai and head for Canaan. And uh, so both of them were to be marked by this keeping of the Passover. Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. And so the Lord told the children, Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. Now there were certain men 
who were defiled by a human corpse. So they'd come into contact with a dead body, which rendered them ceremonially unclean. They couldn't partake of the Passover as a result of, of that. So uh, they, because of it, they could not keep the Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron that day. So here they are, they're unclean, it's the second Passover, and we touched this dead body, and now we can't, you know, enjoy the, the Passover, this great celebration of God's salvation and redemption. And so they said to Moses and to Aaron, we've become defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from uh, pre presenting the offering of the Lord at his, its appointed time among the children of Israel? They say, it's true, we've touched the dead body, we're ceremonial and ceremonially unclean, we can't partake of the Passover, but we really want to partake of the Passover. These, these guys have really got a great heart. They're not you know, indifferent about, well, you know, Passover, there'll be another chance of this guy. They really wanted to celebrate this with the Lord. So they say, come and say, listen, is there any, any way that we can do that? And Moses uh, said to them, stand still that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. So Moses thinks about it, and they're bringing this thing to him, and uh, this, this request that they've made, and the, in this question that they have uh, of Moses, he doesn't have the slightest idea what God would say related to this. And there are those things in life, aren't there, where the Bible, the, the written word of God, the Bible, makes this very, very clear. You go left, you go right, you do this, you do that, no discussion, clear as a bell. And then there's other issues in life where it, it isn't, uh, this particular circumstance hasn't been clear, uh, clearly uh, spoken of by the Lord, what we should do in that. And we hit those those situations, <clears throat> and so what do we do with them? Well, we do what Moses uh, did here, and that is, number one, when somebody comes to us with a question like that, we're not afraid to say, I don't know. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing in any person, and, and certainly in a leader, and Moses models it fabulously here, when somebody co comes in and says, well, what about this? Or what? I don't have any idea, but you know what? I'll take that to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes there's pressure, especially when we're young in our service to the Lord, to... Um, uh, pressure to kind of convey uh, general perfection. Just a half step from Jesus, kind of. You know, uh, we're just this side of omniscience. We know pretty much everything and, and all. And we feel like it'll, people will uh, lose respect for us if we say, you know, that's a great question. I don't have any idea. But I will be faithful to seek the Lord in prayer related to that. And that's, that's what he uh, does there. It's a great thing, not only for Moses and not only for leaders in the in the body of Christ today, but for all of us in our positions of leadership. Every husband is a leader in their home. Uh, every wife and, and mother is a leader. She's a leader over these children. Uh, we can be leaders in positions at school or leaders in positions at, at work and all these different places that, that we can be uh, leaders in and kind of people have questions and they come uh, to to us with those questions. And Moses is a wonderful model of how to handle that. And how to handle that is when we don't know is to say, and many of you know how often I say this because I've said it to you, I say, that is a great question. And you know, I don't know. And sometimes I know already the word doesn't address that specifically. But you're asking me, can this happen in this church, or can we do this, or maybe this kind of a thing, or what? So, you know, I don't have a mind of the Lord on that. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I will seek the Lord in prayer related to your request. I will genuinely do that consistently until I have the mind of the Lord on what it is that you've given me in this question. As long as you give me the room to hear him. In other words, don't call me every 48 hours. Did you hear him yet? And uh, so sometimes I'll tell people then on things, because sometimes that happens a little bit, and, uh, and I'll say, now listen, I'm going to pray. I'll be diligent in prayer here. If you want to move me in any way, I'll tell you how you can do it. Pray to him. 
Pray to him. You know what that does? Takes her eyes off of me like I'm the, you know, the answer man related to this thing or this is going to go left or right on the basis of what Damien says or does on that. And it puts their focus on the Lord and they begin to intercede uh, for that, that situation. Now, and the person has to be very, very patient about this kind of thing. James chapter 1, James said that if any of us lack wisdom, what are we to do? Well, we're to ask it of God in prayer, just like he does here. He goes to prayer. Lord, I don't know what, we're, what are we supposed to do here on this. It's a good question. And these are, are men who are, are serious about you, and they've brought this forward, and I know that this is of a concern to you, so what are we supposed to do here? One of the problems when God gives that promise to us, that if we lack wisdom, he'll give it to us. He won't upbraid us or make fun of us. Can't you people make any decisions down there? Do I have to answer everything for you? Those are words he never says. <laughs> he likes it when we bring you know, these things to him. And, but he never tells us when he's going to give the wisdom. He just says, I'm going to give it to you. But I, I, I'm not going to, he doesn't promise, within 48 hours or 72 hours at the max, you'll always have your wisdom. And so that's why I tell folks, listen, you've got to be patient on, on this thing. Be patient with me. Sometimes you've got to be patient with God on this. I have found that it's not like we bring something to the Lord and the Lord goes, Wow, who asked you that? That's a good one. That's, I, I'm going to have to call a cabinet meeting up here. That's got me kind of stumped. So it's not like he's buying time for himself. Uh, so he knows the answer immediately. But I think some of us are type A's. I hope there's some other type A's in this room. People, sometimes they look at me and they say, I don't know if it's because I speak slowly or something. They think I'm Mr. Mellow and all, except for people who know me. And, uh, but I'm a type A off the graph, inside. And, uh, and so I like things to move just like this. Come on, come on, come on. And, uh, and the Lord knows that if he were to show me what his will is in a particular situation, I would almost never wait and say, oh no, oh that's right, Lord, thank you for the knowledge of your will here. Now, could you speak, please speak to me related to your timing? I would assume he told me he wants me to do it right now. So I'd be a hundred miles down the road running with this thing, and he wanted me to do it a week from Tuesday. So a lot of times he waits until the timing is right to let some of us loose on these things. It's really beautiful here with, with Moses. I don't, I don't know. Stand still. I'll seek the Lord, what he has to say in all of this. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your posterity, so it's not just this situation, it's beyond, is unclean because of a corpse, or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. So this is an unintentional missing of the Passover. They're away on an unavoidable journey. Uh, they're ceremonially unclean. God says, in those circumstances, they may keep it. Now he tells them, there in verse 11, here's when they can keep it. On the 14th day of the second month at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. Uh, according to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. So God said, sure, let them do it. Let them do it one month later. Let them do it one month later. Now, how many... If we had sit down, let's just put yourself in Moses' shoes and say, oh, there's no need to, this is a no-brainer. How many of you would have thought God would be that flexible on the issue of the Passover? I mean, he can really surprise us with his grace. And, and I, I think they kind of got surprised by this a little bit. God says, no, I understand that. That's unavoidable. They have a desire to partake in this. It can happen for them one month later. But if a man who is clean and is not on a journey, in other words, there's no excuse for him not to keep the Passover, and he ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off, disfellowship from among his people, because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. So there's no excuse for somebody saying, just rebellious. I'm not going to keep God's command to keep the Passover and, and I'm going to bring my rebellious attitude as a leaven into the rest of the body of Christ or the children of Israel. God said, put them out. Uh, it is because of 
this Passover. It's because of my relationship with them that this nation has all of the blessings that it has. This man is not to partake in those blessings while thumbing his nose at the God who provides it and showing disrespect to him in that way. So God had kind of a short fuse related to rebellion and disrespect. He said further in verse 14, if a stranger, that is a Gentile, a non-Jew, dwells among you and he wants to keep uh, the Lord's Passover, he or she, he must do so according to the rite of the Passover and according to its ceremony. And you shall have one ordinance both for the stranger and the native of the land. And so the Gentiles could partake of, of the Passover. They would become proselytes. They would convert to Judaism. They would also have to be, uh, and basically put their faith in the God of Israel. They would also have to be, the males would have to be physically uh, circumcised in order to partake of, of the Passover. But God here, again, it's a beautiful picture of Christ. The New Testament, God says, no, it's okay for Jews and Gentiles to partake of the Passover, knowing that Jesus would come into the world as the Savior of both Jews and of Gentiles. So a little snapshot of a greater reality that that would uh, become clear, very clear to us in Christ. Now, on that the, the day that the tabernacle was raised up, and uh, so here's how the Lord would lead them in, in the wilderness. On the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. And so it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. So remember they dedicated the tabernacle to the Lord. And then what did the Lord do? He he manifested his presence, his pleasure with all, the, how obediently they had made all of these things, their desire to please him and worship him. And he made his presence known to them by coming in a great cloud. And people, everybody worshipped the Lord. And it was a, a picture of his presence. God is now going to, since it's already in their mind as a symbol of his presence, God is now going to use that picture of a cloud with the addition of a pillar of fire as a, a symbol of his presence among the children of Israel and as a way of leading them uh, through the wilderness. And so it talks in the Bible about the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. So some people look at it and say, and, and so when that pillar of fire would move, then the camp would say, God is moving, let's follow him, as we'll see in a moment or the cloud during the day would move, then the camp would gear up and they would follow God's presence. God's presence is valuable to us. So that's what they would do. Now, we don't really know whether uh, during the day this great kind of a pillar, you know, this... Uh, uh, you know, pillar, what a pillar looks like, of, of cloud, uh, whether that was during the day, that's all that was there, and then at night that that pillar became a pillar of fire. It's very, very handy. A cloud is very, very nice. That very hot, dry uh, area of, of the world, a cloud during the day, and then a fire at night. It's cold at night and things in, the, in that wilderness. So whether there was kind of a change that occurred or whether it was just constantly a fire cloud. And that when the sun came up, you couldn't really see the fire. It was the cloud that was the thing that you saw. And then when it, it got dark, uh, then you would cease to see the cloud. And now the fire would become uh, more evident to you. But at any rate, it was, an, it was represented his presence, presence and his way of leading them uh, through the wilderness. And uh, whenever, verse 17, the cloud was taken up from among the, uh, above the tabernacle, after the children of Israel, uh, after that the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. And at the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds stayed above the tabernacle, they remained in camp. So the cloud would move, everybody would take down the tabernacle, put everything together in, and carry things. They would all get in their marching orders and then follow in a line. When it stopped, that was where they would camp. They would only go so far during that day or series of days. He could lead them one day after another for months, or he could lead them 
for one day and then stop and have them be there for six months. This was completely in his control. Now, wouldn't it be nice if the leading of the Lord was that clear? <laughs> you know, in the New Testament. Let's see, uh, what's the will of God for my life? And you just look up. Where's that pillar of cloud by, by day and the pillar of fire by night? And so it did possess this very valuable characteristic of clarity for the person wanting to know the will of God. And uh, so sometimes we can look at it with kind of a little bit of envy. Wow, I wish I knew the will of God for where I'm supposed to go with that kind of, of clarity. And, uh, but the Lord does it a little different way in the New Testament, in this covenant. He does it, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Uh, uh, that for us is the word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now see, it's a, it's a different covenant. It's a different situation. He's leading three million people. They're all on the same page. They're all supposed to be together. They're all supposed to go to one place together. Really super uh, great situation. In, in just one big group of people to lead, and that's how he did it. Now you take the body of Christ in the New Testament. Where is that? All over the world. Everywhere, in every country, among every people, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, you have Christians. You can't do that by pillar. It's a different organism, a different thing. And so here, what we have is we look and say, what's God's will for my life? We go to the Word of God and we say, okay, I see what the Word of God says as far as it goes, but specifically, am I to move uh, to Merced or to Atwater, you know, or whatever it is? Then you take that situation to the Lord in, in prayer, and then the Lord leads us. And there needs to be that kind of precision in His, his leading of, of the body of Christ for us individually, because there are so many of us, millions and millions and millions all over the world. So as you kind of uh, look at this and you say, wow, I'd sure like to have that kind of, of clarity and all. Uh, don't be too envious of it. We do have the, more, uh, the superior way of, uh, of doing things for God to get every single one of us in the specific place that he wants us to be. The other thing is, is you can follow a pillar, a pillar like that without having a prayer life. You can follow that without being close to God. One of the things about how God leads us today in, in the use of prayer and all is it forces us to stay very close to Him. And that's a wonderful thing for people who are prone to wander, Lord I know it, prone to leave the one I love. And, and there's that wandering thing in us and this, uh, this knowledge that I need to stay close to Him in order to hear His voice. It's one more thing that helps us uh, to do that. Even when, verse 19, the cloud continued long, Many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. And so it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped, and according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. And so it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, just an overnight stop here, then uh, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey whether by day or by night, whether the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year. Now this journey should have never taken a year. It was an 11-day journey from Sinai to the Promised Land. We're going to see why they didn't get there in 11 days. ends up being 38 years. So this is spoken uh, kind of retroactively for uh, speaking to the 38 years uh, on things. So uh, when it would, whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. At the command of the Lord, they remained encamped. And at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And then the Lord spoke, chapter 10, to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself and make them of hammered work. And, uh, and here's the purpose for these two trumpets. You shall use them, number one, for calling the congregation, and number two, for directing the movement of the camps. 
Now they're already using, for, as we saw again earlier in the Pentateuch, they're already using horns for different things, celebration of the Lord, certainly used on the Day of Atonement. And the horn that they're using up to this point is called the shofar, and it's a ram's horn. And when people go to Israel, a lot of times they like to buy a ram's horn to bring back. It's very interesting. Got to have good lungs to get something out of those ram's horns, man. And uh, so, but they're they're fun, and that's what they would use. God speaks to them now and says, "I want you to make two silver trumpets, and uh, and and they're to be made of of hammered work." And so you've got these two silver trumpets. And what they were was basically uh, uh, just kind of a long slender tube. And then there would be the bell at the end. Kind of like you would see in the Middle Ages where a king would be making his way and they'd put the trumpets up. A little better than that or whatever, that, whatever the call was on that. They would raise it up and then they would uh, toot that particular uh, trumpet. Only these trumpets, according to Josephus, uh, you know, uh, related to this, he says that these trumpets were in the 18-inch variety. So just about 18 inches, not too big, and, and they would be used uh, for, for the purpose that he lays out here. No, um, any kind of, uh, those of you who, you know, uh, none of these, this doesn't go on the tape very well, uh, but there, there was, uh, it, it was, it was, it was a, like a bugle. You just had to blow it, and your signals would uh, be differentiated on the basis of pitch or the length of, of the blowing of it, intermittent sa- of the sounds and all, but you couldn't make different sounds with those buttons. What's the real word for those? What are they? Okay, wait a second. Valves? Is that what I heard? Valves is what they are? Man, you guys are so cultured and educated. What am I doing here, Lord? So the valves have been rescued again by your people. So the valves, these didn't have any valves. So no one will ever forget that for the rest of their lives. So the purpose for it, for the calling uh, the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. Three million people. That's a big camp. So you can't have Moses or Aaron saying, All right, head up. Move out. Your voice would just die 30 people in. You still got, you know, 2,990-some, 87 people to reach on things. So you had to have a way to get everybody's attention that something was happening, and then you had to, to direct them now. And that's what these, um, these things were used uh, for, because the sound could really carry throughout the camp, especially in that desert air, would really carry out there. And, and so the Lord wanted them just to move decently in an order. God is a God of order. Uh, and, and so these trumpets would sound. And what would happen is Moses and Aaron would wake up in the morning, doubtless early each morning. They'd look and they'd see if the cloud was moving. And if the cloud was moving, someone would then blow the trumpet to then uh, tell the rest of the camp, we're moving out today. And uh, so then they'd start to break down the tabernacle, get it ready. The tribes would get in their place then to continue their journey. So it was a means of communication. And, and of course, this thing has uh, been used for communication among large numbers for uh, thousands of, of years. And when they blow both of them at the same time, this was a signal that all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So everyone would come to the tabernacle with that. But if they blow only one, then only the leaders, the heads of the division of Israel, they would gather to Moses and to Aaron. When you sound the advance, time to head them up and move them out, the camps that lie on the east side shall begin their journey. When you sound the advance the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey, and they, sh- uh, and they shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. And it doesn't speak of the west and the north, but it's obvious there's a progression there. And when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but not sound the advance. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpet. Trumpets. That was only respon- That was a responsibility. Only the priests could blow the trumpets. These two trumpets, and these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And God gives this 
trumpet blowing as a responsibility of the priest, I, I'm convinced, in order to communicate to the entire nation, that because they're going forth as God's people, they're going forth as a great army, and, and basically God is communicating that the success of my people, the success of this great army of God, is completely dependent upon their holiness and, and uh, upon their, their spiritual and godly character. And so it was entrusted to, to the priests. And when you go to war in, in your land, interestingly enough, against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. Now, this is interesting. A lot of wars go on around Israel today, isn't it? So every, every day, um, uh, typically on an average day, I'll click onto the Jerusalem Post and see what is happening in Israel a little bit. Just read the headlines about what's going on. And every day it's more rockets and into Ashkelon and uh, down into the, the um, uh, area down in the, in the wilderness and towards Gaza and all the different things that they deal with. God spoke to um, them and, and said, listen... Uh, once you conquer the land, and they conquered the promised land at his commandment, he said, once you conquer that land and you're in that land, no offensive wars. You are free to raise up your arms and to fight against people who are oppressing you, who are threatening your existence. But you are not to use my favor, my blessing upon you, to go and do a conquest of the entire Middle East. They didn't, he didn't want that with them. And it's interesting how you watch their history all the way through to today. When David enlarged the kingdom, uh, 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 the nation of Israel to its largest in its history, he never in, in, initiated a war. It was always one of the surrounding nations that came and tried to defeat Israel or to kill their people. He would then raise up the army, go out. God would remember them, as he said in the passage here. He would then go out and defeat them, and then they would become subservient to the nation. But there was never a thing of, let's go you know, conquer Edom, or let's go conquer Damascus, uh, just so we can have more stuff to sell in our markets. There was none of that. And even to this day, you watch the nation, of Israel. They're faithful to this. They're not out there trying to take over Jordan or take over, uh, you know, uh, even Gaza they've given it back. They're not trying to take over Lebanon or take over Egypt and all. They're really faithful to stay true to God in this and it's commendable in them that their wars would not be offensive wars on their part, but only wars that they're drawn into, by, uh, provoked in, uh, in order to deal with some oppression uh, by their neighbors. And so there was to be that limitation on war. And also, on the day of your gladness, so these trumpets were to be blown, in addition to all of the other worship and the songs and the instruments and the shofars that were being blown uh, during the appointed feasts and all of these celebrations and feasts of the holy days, at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before the Lord. I am the Lord your God. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of uh, the testimony. Martha! I mean, how exciting. This is a verse in the Bible. Put yourself in their place. So they got all these things, all these final details taken care of. And then on this day, they wake up and the cloud starts to move. Everything that we've been prepared for, God's alive. He's moving. He's leading us now to the promised land. Wow, what an exciting verse. Verse 11 uh, is Let me just do a little um, uh, dance for you, to interpretive dance to give you a sense for the... You will never see that. You'll never see that from a Scot. just isn't going to happen. Now the Irish in me wants to, but the Scot always wins out. So, um, 
So the excitement here and the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journey. So here we go. And then the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. And so they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And the standard of the camp of the children of Judah set, uh, set out first according to their armies. Over their army was Nashon. Uh, the son of Aminadab over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar. Verse 15 was Nathaniel over the army of the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Eliab. Then the tabernacle following these three uh, was taken down. The sons of Gershon, the sons of Merai, they set out carrying the tabernacle. And then the standard of the, taber- uh, of the camp of Reuben set out according to their armies. Over their army was Elizur over the army of the tribe of the children of Simeon was Shlemuel and then over the tribe army of the tribe of the children of Gad was Eliasaph then the Kohathites, they set out, everything just as God said, carrying the holy things. The tabernacle would be prepared before their, uh, for their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set out according to their armies. Over their army was Elishama. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Manasseh was uh, Gamaliel. Over the tr- army of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abidan. And then the tr- standard of the camp of the children children of Dan, the rear guard of all the camps set out according to their armies. Over their army was uh, Ahiezer. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pagiel. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Ahira. And thus was the order of the march of the children of Israel according to their armies uh, when they began their journey. So boom, they just head out pageantry. You've got these standards. The people are marching. They're being led by the leader and uh, these leaders are going to find out they're going to fail very very shortly in, in the account is one thing to be out in a parade and to be acknowledged as a leader among God's people it's another thing when you find yourself in a place between having to choose between what pleases God and what God is calling you to do and, and it has made the hard thing because the people are wanting you to do something else and they fail Terribly in just about three chapters. This is all gravy. Parades, all these things, they're great, but if it isn't backed up by that kind of a, a, a jealousy for God and for His will, then, then a leader is going to become a casualty. Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, uh, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. So uh, this, is, uh, this is Moses' brother-in-law. She, he is some relation to his wife. He, so he says to him, We're setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. We're heading to promised land. You come with us and we'll treat you well. The Lord has promised good things to Israel in, in that land. And, and, and uh, Hobab said, I, I will not go, but I'll depart to my own land and to my own relatives. He was a Midianite. He wanted to go home. I want to go, you know, back to my people and back to the place that I was raised and all. And, and so there was nothing about Moses' offer that appealed uh, to him. So he just says no. And it's all very understandable. So Moses, he doesn't give up easily. He approaches him a second time, pleads with him, please do not leave inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness and you can be our eyes. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. Now Moses does something different in his second offer. The first offer is just come with us, God's going to bless us, and there's going to be great prosperity in where we're going. The guy says, no thanks. I mean, how many meals can you eat a day, and I don't need a new car, and, and I got a good Honda Accord with only 13,000 miles on it. I'll die before I need another one. So he doesn't really you know, that entices him. But when, uh, see, it's all there in the Bible. It's, it's, you know, you think it's not. But um, so what he does then is, in the thing is he comes back and says basically to him, listen, we need you. You know this desert, you know this area, and you know how we can set up, up the camp here. 
And with that, it appears from what we know in Judges and elsewhere in, in the Bible that Hobab then, on the basis of that offer, did agree to follow Moses and to be an assistant to the children of Israel in, in uh, their journey to the, to the Promised Land. Now, people look at, at, uh, at Moses here. I am just about done, by the way. So we won't, we won't order in any pizzas tonight. So, but people look and say, was this a mistake on Moses' part? God had said he would lead them. So what is he doing trying to you know, have Hobab get involved in, in all of this? So they view it as a great mistake on Moses' part. I don't necessarily view it that way. And people are evenly split o- over the issue. Um, I don't think, obviously, Moses isn't asking Hobab to do what the Lord has promised to do. Uh, come in and lead us as a people. He's not asking uh, for that. Uh, what he's asking, and the word is very important in verse 31, please do not leave inasmuch as you know how, and that's the word. We're not asking you to lead us where. We're not talking about where, and we're not talking about when, Hobab. It's when we have the where and the when from the Lord, and this is the place that we're going to set the camp up. You're familiar with the terrain. You can tell us how to do this set up. You know, the camp's supposed to be in a certain way, but you can tell us whether there's a problem with tarantulas in this area, or you have to be careful of this thing or that kind of a thing. Heads up on this as you set things up because you can't drive the stakes as far in this area. And you can be a help on the how, and that's all he was asking for uh, on on that. And Moses is not condemned in any way uh, in, in the passage for, for making this request. So I leave it to you uh, to uh, you know, decide for yourself uh, related to that. And so they departed, verse 33, from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. Their initial journey was three days. And the ark of the uh, covenant of the Lord went before them for three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out of the camp. And so it was whenever the ark set out in the morning that Moses would cry out before they started to leave the camp, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Lord, we're heading out into a hostile world. We're heading out into, you know, where enemies are, and we just look to you to be strong for us today and make us successful. And then when it rested at the end of the day, he would say, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Now in the evening it would be a time to just uh, meditate upon how faithful God had been to them that day and to just rest in that faithfulness. So in any day, the two most important parts of any day, uh, every part of it is important, but is the beginning and the end. And the beginning and the end of the day was both of those times there was to be an acknowledgement of God. God, I need you. I need you at the beginning of the day to lead me. I'm heading out into a battle. I'm heading out into a warfare. Would you show yourself strong on my behalf? Would you protect me today? Would you make us useful? Make this day profitable today. And then at the end of the day to just stop and acknowledge you've been so faithful to us again another day. Thank you for the rest. Thank you for leading us and and a rest this evening. And so they would close out each day that they moved. So we'll pick things up in chapter 11, Lord willing, uh, next week. It gets, uh, we'll ask the worship team to come forward at this point in time.